I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as vampires, blood gods, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. We've been late before. <laughs> but we've never been like a week late before. It's all on me this time. Yeah, sorry guys. Josh has been busy as shit at work, and he had time to do his research and his notes, but we could not squeeze in recording. Yeah, being essential is uh, that's nice to get you know overtime every week, but damn. <laughs> but you know, better late than never. I say a lot because we're late all the time. This is a bad shtick to have. <laughs> Jesus. But here we are on May eleventh, twenty twenty. Recording episode 40 on the Blade Trilogy. Holy shit, the podcast just turned 40. What a milestone. We're getting there, too. <laughs> and uh, Blade Trilogy, it's a, it's a odd one in a way for us to cover, but not so much when I watched the trilogy. When we came out with the idea, I thought it was going to be a little more off than it actually was. I'd much rather do this than Underworld. I know it's coming, but I'd still <laughs> much rather do this than Underworld. <laughs> You know, I don't want to sidetrack for too long here, but that's one thing that makes me mad. There's a lot of good stuff there with Underworld, like the lore, like the backstory and the lore. Yeah. And the way they handle vampires and worlds, so awesome. The execution of the movies, not necessarily, <laughs> especially the later ones. Yeah, I haven't seen those. Like, they lost me after like two and a half. Oh, I'm just going to have to make you do it now. You shouldn't have said that. Be sure to tune in on the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but you're probably not going to be happy about that one either when we get there. Oh, man. But before we dive into Blade, let's go over a little bit of uh, news and announcements. I can't recall any corrections from the last episode. So either we're really good or it's been a while. Dude, I've honestly been too busy to even go back and listen to what the hell we did last episode to check for corrections. You proofed it twice before I pushed it out. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So anybody who's like, what's wrong with this? That was me. <laughs> but uh, this is episode 40 of the podcast, so we turned 40 in one way, but Friday the 13th turned 40 years old in the past few days. Holy shit. That mongoloid still kicking and screaming. Jesus Christ. Uh, Friday or Saturday, I think it was, it, it turned 40 years old. So that's insane. Wow. American Horror Story announced a spinoff show, American Horror Stories. Okay. It's going to be self-contained episodes, which is probably really cool if you think about it. So the American Horror Story version of Black Mirror? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> yeah Twilight Zone or something like that. Yeah. And if you think about it, like a lot of the seasons suffer from having like a really good main story, and then they try to squeeze in a bunch of other little stories, and it kind of kills it. Right. Or puts too much filler. Maybe they'll save that now for the min, you know, the mini sodes or whatever you want to call it, instead of squeezing them into the uh, primary series. Yeah, we'll maybe. have to see. That's some subplot having motherfuckers. I know. I know. Speaking of Twilight Zone, Twilight Zone season two is going to come out on June 25th. And I still haven't watched a single episode of season one. I feel terrible having either. But uh, <laughs> Jordan, we're going to check it out, buddy. We're going to check it out. Oh, uh... Well, it's on like CBS All Access or something. I mean, I'm sure I picked the station wrong, but it's on one of those other, hey, we're going to charge you $8 a month too, even though we could just put it on TV or any of the other streaming services. And I just kind of didn't bite on that. Yeah, but then they couldn't have F-bombs. Our boy Flanagan's going to be busy because one, 
He announced that he's doing Christopher Pike's novel, The Midnight Club, as a Netflix TV show, which was a book with a huge cult following. And I remember seeing it like at everybody's house and in libraries. Never read it, but I'm going to have to read it now. <laughs> I remember the cover like very specifically. When you sent me and the wife that news, I looked it up and went to Christopher Pike's like Wikipedia and was going through all the novel series and everything. I was like, I've never read any of this, but a lot of this shit sounds familiar. <laughs> Uh, right, right. So I am too. And he also announced that he is doing an adaptation of Stephen King's revival, which is a book from a few years ago. Oh, okay. I thought you were just had this in the notes as like there was a Stephen King revival going on. <laughs> no, 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 no. Stephen King has a novel called revival and Mike's working on adapting it to a, to a film right now. And he has the option to direct it when he's done. Okay. We talked about being excited with him going down that road with King's works, you know, and I hope he doesn't get stuck there. Let's not, I know. let's not get stuck there. I remember saying that like, oh, I can't wait to see what he does next. And he's done awesome with these Stephen King movies. And now he's just kind of still doing the Stephen King movies. But we'll just see how it goes. <laughs> Do more Stephen King. You're the Stephen King guy. When we were covering Hush. They had said that their little small group of four people or whatever wanted to do more like mini cheap horror movies. Yeah. Where's it at? Yeah, I know, right? Hush might be my favorite movie of his actually. So I, <laughs> I need more of that. But uh, that, that's all I have for horror news. You got anything? Oh, this is kind of no news is news. Usually by this point in the year, we have at least two official announcements for uh, Halloween Horror Nights, and we have none. Permitting and construction is still going on. Nothing has been officially canceled yet other than the delay of construction for Epic Universe, but that's a whole nother podcast. Not ours either. Um, so, <laughs> um, man, the, the, the damn Rona's got its tentacles and everything. And uh, I know. We've got nothing official for Halloween Horror Nights, but I hope it happens. And uh, we got, a, or the wife got a really long questionnaire from Universal Studios that she did the other day. It took her over an hour to do it. And uh, it was all about how would you feel about us cleaning everything? How would you feel about us providing masks? How would you feel about us charging 25% more, even though we're under capacity? Like, oh shit, oh shit, they're figuring out how to do it. They're figuring, there's just no way to get people to stay away from each other. That's my problem. That and flying. Yeah. But anyways. That's the only news I got. No news. <laughs> Honestly, though, in this crazy new world we live in, that is something I think everybody is going to have to accept is less people and then they have to charge more. Well, and that's what I was telling the wife. I was like, I can understand this. Like, it's going to cost them X amount of money to operate, period. Now they got to keep cleaning everything and like try to enforce new things that cost even more. And if they're at a lower capacity, the only way to do this is to charge more or just not fucking open. And honestly, the only way things like that, even going in the movies, can stay affordable is they're going to have to count on getting less profits also. Because yep. you can only charge people so much more. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, they're, they're not going to be able to make up for both their extra cleaning cost and their lack of people. Like lack of asses in the seats for a movie theater's case. Yep. And I don't. I don't know if they could do half of either either. You know what I mean? Yeah. I didn't mean to say either either there, but you know, like <laughs> it, it's really companies are going to have to count on less profits. I feel like to stay afloat right now. Yeah, it is what it is. Speaking of movies, uh, what have you watched in our long sabbatical here? <laughs> I feel like I had this really long list when we were supposed to record a week and a half ago. And I could only remember a couple of things, but I watched all of lock and key. On Netflix, I knew I said I had started that. Yeah. But I finally went and finished it because my wife, it was one of them she didn't really get into, so I had to go back and watch it. And I watched all of Nosferatu, 
which I'd only watched a couple and I stopped on that one also, but it's because I hit this whole, it's not like the book thing. And I decided to just get over the hump and finish it and make it to the end because season two is going to start here in like a month or two, I think. So did you feel like by the last couple episodes, it felt like they were trying to horseshoe stuff in? I felt like by the last couple of episodes, it became more like the book. Oh, really? Than the rest of the season had. Yeah. See, I haven't read any of this that I know, you know, the wife went through the whole right out the gate, like, oh, it's so different from the book. And then, yeah, I missed the middle and then came back in and was watching towards the end with her. And like, I was asking so many questions. She's like, would you just shut up? And I'm like, there's just too much going on. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna go back out here. I'm sure I watch lots of kid shit that's irrelevant to this podcast, but that's that's all I can think of that I watch. Now, what'd you guys watch? Dude, we always watch so much shit because of shitty movie Sunday on Netflix <laughs> that I should note some of this. So the only stuff I have noted is actually from yesterday. And uh, that's Trick, which have you seen that? Nope. I don't want to give it away, but it's based around Halloween and it's a slasher flick. And that's all I'm going to say for now since you haven't seen it. Michael. You, oh, you, you would appreciate it. Okay, I'll check it out. That's I'll try to watch say. it this week. And then we watched this other movie called Boo, which is actually mm-hmm. from 2005, and it's not a Medea movie. The premise sounds great, <laughs> but oh, oh, it's so bad. Avoid, 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 avoid. If you see the movie okay, Boo, okay. and it's, there's like three movies named Boo. Not the one from 2018, not the one from 2019, the one from 2005 where the kids go to the abandoned hospital to the third floor. That's the one you want to avoid. And uh, <laughs> Okay. I might avoid all three of them out of principle. <laughs> we sat and watched all of Jaws. Hadn't done that in forever. We're supposed to cover that sometime <laughs> in the near distant future. You should have waited. <laughs> well, I wasn't watching it for the podcast. Of course, I was on my phone half the time. Ah, gotcha. I do want to say, assuming this comes out on time, <laughs> <laughs> it should come out on Friday the 15th, right? Okay. Regardless if it's a day or two late. Scoob is coming out on the 15th, and I'm kind of excited to watch that with my kids. I saw that. Who the hell is voicing Shaggy? I mean, it's. I think they're trying to reboot it finally now that a lot of the originals are either gone or can't do it anymore. And then, you know, they had some of the movie actors like Matthew Lillard was doing Shaggy for the past few years on the old style cartoons. I think they're trying to bring it back for like a new generation with a new art style. And that's why the origins being shown in it. And they're probably trying to get all new cast to carry it forward, which I'm not against. I mean, it's an old fucking cartoon. I mean, it's not that old, but you know what I mean? Oh, it's old enough. It's this is enough to make me feel old because the next generation that gets into it, you try to show them the old shit and they're gonna be like, that's terrible. (laughs) You say that, but my son, Aiden, who's six is downstairs watching old school Scooby-Doo right now. That's all he's been watching for days. He finishes every series like that's on Netflix or Hulu or whatever. And and as he finishes one, he goes to the next. And I actually bought on Amazon 13 goes to Scooby-Doo. So I could watch that one with them. Cause I remember that from when we were kids with yeah. Vincent Price and they're going after yep. a real ghost. I never realized they didn't actually catch all 13 ghosts before the show ended. It's only one season. Oh no shit. In my head, I remembered they ca- It was like a mini series and they captured all of them in 13 episodes. It's not true. <laughs> All I remember from the old episodes is Vincent Price and the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> <laughs> and those are actually two different series, I think. So. Yeah. Because I, um, I think the Globetrotters were on What's New Scooby-Doo? Maybe. There's so many versions. I don't know. Anyways. So, yeah, we went off on that tangent. <laughs> yeah, we should uh, probably 
probably move on with the with the episode now before yeah. we start getting those hate mails about rambling too long before the shows and how people have to fast forward. Um, <laughs> people do that. They do that. <laughs> well, like I said, we're here to discuss the Blade trilogy. And uh, before I get into the actual movie, a uh, little background information on it. Josh and I actually saw this movie in the theaters together when it came out. We did. And uh, I had to drag Josh to go. He didn't want to go initially. And he had a great time. So <laughs> It's because I, I figured I was seeing another action flick. It was a weird time for right. movies, man. Weird time for movies. <laughs> and we were both pleasantly surprised. I was really surprised, though, because I've been an avid comic fan for most of my life. And that blade was not the blade from the comics. <laughs> and I want to get into that a little bit before we dive into the movie. Blade actually first appeared in Tomb of Dracula issue number 10 in 1973, which I actually have part of that series downstairs. I've been trying to piece it together. Unfortunately, it was part of my comic collection that got stolen at school during show and tell and got damaged, which made me sad. But yeah. um, his name was Eric Brooks in the comic books. He was born in 1929 in London in a brothel. Okay. His mother was a prostitute there. She was having complications with the pregnancy. They called in Dr. Deacon Frost, who was a vampire and feasted on his mother while he was in utero. And she died with the enzymes basically transferred into the baby, umbilical cord and all, to, to turn Blade into the hybrid that he was, right? Ah. And I don't remember the specifics, but somehow the prostitutes run Deacon Frost off out of the brothel and they raised Blade there as a child. And he was completely different than what you see in the movie. His powers included him having um, a prolonged lifespan, the ability to sense other supernatural beings, and he had a complete immunity to vampirism. That's it. Oh. No fangs, no bloodlust, no super strength, no super speed, no super healing, like none of that. I guess I should say how he got trained and whatnot and how he turned into, into what he became. But he, he was raised in the brothel, like I said. And somewhere, I think it was the age of nine, roughly, he saw a man being attacked by three vampires. And he went and assisted the man who had a silver cane and killed the three vampires. And we found out the guy was a jazz trumpeteer named Jamal Afari. Okay. All right. And apparently he knew about vampires and hunted them. And he trained Eric how to play the trumpet and other instruments as well as combat. Okay. Shit you not. This is this is the comics, okay? Wow, and, that got left out of the movies. <laughs> yep, yep. And Eric became an Olympic level athlete, which is basically any bullshit Marvel would use on a human like character. They always yeah. say Olympic like athlete back in the day. And he specialized in hand hand combat and he was awesome with knives and daggers. So his nickname was Blade. Hey, it's all coming together. And he fought with wooden knives and daggers because he killed vampires. Okay. So he was Blade the Vampire Killer. And he appeared in various Dracula comics. Okay. And he met characters like Deacon Frost. He met characters like Hannibal King. He met characters like Frank Drake, who's a descendant of Dracula, but actually hunted down Dracula. He killed Dracula a couple of times on there because Dracula always comes back. Yeah. But in the 90s, in a Spider Man cartoon series, which we used to watch regularly. Yeah. The Amazing Spider Man. Blade was portrayed slightly differently than he was in the comic books. He had the leather jacket. He rode a motorcycle. He had some badass weapons. And that was the template to make the movie character. And they turned the comic book character into that blade. 
but they had a problem on their hands. He didn't have all these cool fucking powers and he wasn't half vampire really, right? He just had yeah. like a little bit of special stuff. So what they did is they had Morbius the living vampire. I don't know if you remember him, right? Vaguely. There's a movie coming out soon made by Sony starring Jared Leto. So, Oh, God. He's probably born to play this role if you see the trailer, hey. but uh, m- more than the Joker role. But, you know, <laughs> M- Morbius was a vampire, but he was a vampire by science, not by magic. Yeah. Well, he bit Blade because Blade hunted him down. And since he was a living vampire instead of like a magical undead vampire, it bypassed Blade's immunity to vampirism. And since he was a hybrid, it turned him into the daywalker that we all know and love. That is some mental gymnastics right there, but I'll take it. And I don't know how many of our listeners are actually comic fans, but just the fact that the character started at point A and (laughs) ended at point B, I think is fascinating. Yeah, it's like the exact opposite of what they did to Ghost Rider. (laughs) But it's really cool. I mean, they they took a, a, I won't say lesser known because Marvel always did pretty well with the horror comics. If you read the horror comics, you knew who Blade was, but Past that, he he didn't show up in many other things like Spider-Man and shit like that. And they they took that character, beefed him up for the cinema, which comic book movies were not the huge success they are today at this point in time, and made a badass movie and completely altered a 20-something-year-old comic book character at that point in time for the better, I'd say. Like, this comics got more popular. He had more crossovers, spawned a movie trilogy, a TV series. Another Blade movie series is going to be starting soon, made by Marvel. I'll get to that at the end. So, I mean, a lot of great stuff came out of this movie. So, with that in mind, let's just jump right in. Blade was made in 1998, and I want to keep that in mind when we cover some of the special effects and scenes in this movie, (laughs) because honestly, this movie did shit before other people that are more well-known for it did. Yeah. So, the movie was directed by Stephen Norrington, who actually had a special effects background in... He has done various special effects and puppets and stuff for things we've seen throughout the years, but nothing huge. And he had directed a movie called Death Machine before this. And unfortunately, he directed the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen afterwards. And I don't remember if he directed anything after that. That was not a good movie. There was another movie in between the two, but it wasn't really a genre flick. Dude, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen was such a letdown. (laughs) I know. I was so excited to go see it, too. But. I mean, I guess they hired him because he was the Blade guy, right? You directed Blade. (laughs) And uh, I don't don't really know what what old Steven's up to these days, but directing's not one of those things he stuck with. Huh. The movie was written by David S. Goyer. You need to get used to this name. It's going to come up a little bit, just a little bit. And this guy has done a lot of shit, and I mean that for better and for worse. I'm trying to decide how I want to do this. You know what? I'll save his director credits. We'll ignore his director credits for now. Okay. okay. But as far as genre flicks, he uh, did Demonic Toys, Dollman vs. Demonic Toys, screenplay for the Puppet Masters. Yeah, yeah. He Pro was City all up in Angels. Some full moon. Yeah. Oh, come on. City Angels. Dude, I watch three and four. It makes two look beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> Dark City. That was a good one. Blade, he wrote this movie, like I said. He wrote the whole whole trilogy. And honestly, he, he actually wrote Batman Begins for Christopher Nolan. So, yep. I mean, that's probably like the big feather in his hat right there, there at the end. And he wrote some movies that he directed. But like I said, we will cross that bridge at another time. And this movie, just the way it jumps back and forth on some of it, I, I think it is better to handle the principal cast right out the gate. And yeah. uh, we couldn't have the movie without Wesley Snipes. I don't, I don't know how to say it. Wesley Snipes is fucking Blade, okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Demolition Man and this. 
Hopefully the next guy, which I'll save to the end in case people don't know, can do it. He's the only person I can see doing it. So we'll just see. We'll just have to see how it goes. Steven Dorf, who's been on the podcast before, plays Deacon Frost. Who is, he's not the same Deacon Frost from the comics, but he is a vampire with some high ambitions. And uh, Wesley Snipes, I didn't say what he was in, but I mean, Wesley Snipes is just in a, a bunch of action flicks. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you could pull up that list to great extent. This, this is his horror movie, though, right here. Uh, Steven Dorff, we know him from The Gate and whatnot, right? Yeah. Chris Christopherson, famous singer and actor, did lots of other things unlike this movie as well. Is in it as Whistler, and I could not see anybody else playing him. And Whistler's made up for the movie. He's not a comic character, but okay. he's perfect. He fits in. And we have Nabouche Wright in the movie as Karen, and she's like the, the doctor kind of sidekick character that's going to pop up in this movie and she is another person who's been in a bunch of shit but not not really horror movies like this was a first for a lot of people she was probably most notable for being in dead presidents though if i had to say that movie jumps out to me the most out of out of everything on the list donald logue is in the movie as quinn and i fucking (laughs) (laughs) he's so funny in this movie and after i found out that he improved almost all of his lines and him and steven dwarf made up entire scenes that made it in the movie i'm actually not surprised he's a funny guy yeah when you see him and shit but he has been in so much stuff and sometimes he's funny and sometimes he's serious most recently i would say is gotham is probably what he's famous from because he's he's harvey bullock on that and watching him beat the shit out of somebody with a phone book on that show never gets old. <laughs> I'm a fan of Vikings. Oh, I was three seasons behind on Vikings. I watched that since the last episode, too, because oh, okay. I love that show. I was just behind. But he was uh, King Horik on that. So he was an asshole in Sons of Anarchy. I don't know if you ever watched that show, but <laughs> no. he was uh, he was like a junkie FBI agent or something that was hunting him down. Nice. And I, I could go on and on like with stuff that he's been in, but he's one of those guys that's like been in so much shit. And like I said, he can he can play funny or serious, and he's the he's the comic relief of this film, hundred percent. Yeah, he's always good. Anybody else in the movie? Uh, I'm not saying they're not important, but we'll just pop them up as the as they go, okay? Because we're already three hours into this episode. Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> that might be your best use of foreshadowing yet. <laughs> so we open up in a hospital. In 1967, they had to modernize the movie a little bit. It couldn't be 1929, and it's not in London. He's not a Brit anymore. But we see a pregnant woman being wheeled into a a hospital on a stretcher, and she has a severe neck laceration, and we can see from her ID that her name is Vanessa Brooks. So there we go. We got Brooks. If you know Blades Eric Brooks, you know where this is going. (laughs) They deliver the baby, but right as the mom starts to flatline. And that's the opening scene, right? And then we go to opening scene part two, where we cut through like a time lapse of a cityscape from like day to night and it says now like it doesn't give like a, a time frame or a city it just says now and to me it feels like it's supposed to be detroit sometimes like when you see the warehouse district areas you <laughs> i was know? gonna say to to me eric draven's on the other side of the city while this shit's going on <laughs> <laughs> but we see a flirty tracy lords driving a car really fast with her meal in the passenger seat and by meal, I mean, it's her date who doesn't know that, uh, I was going to say a bit off more than he can chew, but it's probably her that's about to do that. Yeah. But they arrive at a meat packing facility and there's a secret door guarded by a big guy that was her real life boyfriend, at least at the time. So that's kind of funny because oh, she no has a little make out sesh with the dude in front of her large boyfriend. I don't remember her character's name. She's not in the movie long. Sorry. Spoilers. <laughs> but we hear her speaking in a, 
in a foreign language that we'll hear throughout the series. It's like the vampire language and the guard lets him in and it's a giant rave happening and there's fucking strobe lights going everywhere and you can see uh, like banners that say the bloodbath, right? And it's in like the, I'm assuming the area where you clean the meat. <laughs> this meat facility. If you can't, if you've never seen the film and you don't know where this is going, you're probably figuring it out right whoa, now. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Tracy Lords and clean the meat. Where are we going here? <laughs> <laughs> that is a different podcast. Uh, not ran by us either. <laughs> and technically, if you pay attention, you can see almost your entire bad guy main cast in the movie right here. Yeah, because uh, Tracy drags her douchebag through the party and i mean he bumps into every main bad character including i didn't catch it the first time and i don't mean the first time i saw it ever i mean for the podcast uh steven dorf like he walks in steven dorf looks at him like fuck you guy you know (laughs) (laughs) and i I think this is where quinn's making out with one chick while he's getting head from another one (laughs) and that's basically his character throughout the movie (laughs) yes and um there's no dialogue here. You just see the party going and our walking meal starts to notice that there's blood dripping on him from the sprinklers in the ceiling. And like I said, the, there's a banner that says bloodbath behind the DJ and he, he pops up them sliders, man. He makes it start cranking. Everybody reaches for the sky and blood starts to pour down on them. And everyone's really excited except for our one human that we're focusing on right now. <laughs> But our walking mill quickly realizes that he's in a room full of vampires and they all start to beat the shit out of him as he crawls away and he slides into the boots of Blade like he's now popped into the movie. And everyone there at the party seems to know who he is and calls him the Daywalker. And they seem apprehensive until they all randomly start to attack him, right? Like they're all afraid of him and like, oh, God, it's him. Stay away. Let's all jump him, right? (laughs) Some mixed signals here. Yeah, he can't. He can't. Can't take on all of us. <laughs> oh, but he can. <laughs> and uh, he proceeds to kung fu kick all of their asses across his meatpacking plant. And he's staking them with silver stakes. He's shooting them with silver bullets. There's fucking dust and ash flying all over the fucking room. Buffy style, but more money thrown into it, probably. Yes, exactly. It evolves and it gets really cool by the third one. But uh, he's winning easily. <laughs> and. Quite frankly, Snipes just looks like a badass, the whole scene, the way he's looking at the camera, the way he smirks, the way he fights. And and that's something you could say about this movie. Wesley Snipes is a martial arts expert. Yeah. Like they could shoot all these fights with him in the scene. And he was also a good actor. Something else I didn't know about Wesley Snipes. He was a classically trained theater actor before he started doing all these action movies. That I did not know. You know what I mean? And that kind of explains why he takes the Blade role so seriously. But, I mean, he's not known for his dialogue in, in most of his movies, especially these. But, like, the face, the face plays it in the, in the Blade trilogy, right? The face with the ass whoopings. Oh, yeah. His his attitude is totally justified and totally believable without being cheesy. Right, right. But basically, he takes a large chunk out of the vampire population at this party until Quinn pops up with some more specialized vampires and he kills them with those badass S blades as they're called. And they're these like, you know, S shaped daggers. And he does this cool thing where he's standing in like a, a round room and he smiles and he chunks them and it fucking spins all the way around the room and kills all of them and comes back to his hand. Yeah. That was the part when we saw it in theater for the first time that that kill around the room was, I was like, okay, you got me. I'll sit here for the rest of the movie. Cause that shit was cool. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like I like my action movies and I used to be, Pretty big in martial art movies, and Josh kind of likes action movies, but that's not really our thing, especially on the show. But these movies do a pretty good job of fucking crossing the line 
yeah. for the most part. I'd say it deviates there at the end, but we're not there yet. <laughs> but uh, after Blade takes out the vampires chasing him with his S-Blades, Quinn decides he's a badass and he's going to come try and fight Blade now, right? And, and long story short, there's some wire foo and they're flying and Quinn ends up staked to a wall with a silver stake in each shoulder. And he doesn't dust because it's not in his heart. And Blade lets him know that he's getting tired of chopping him up. <laughs> right? So this isn't their first tango here. Yep. And basically, he just catches Quinn on fire. <laughs> and he checks the human for bites, and he doesn't see any. And the cops bust in on Blade, and, uh, well, he vamps out. I don't, <laughs> I don't know any other way to say it. Normally, I say that. Uh, it's a little cheesy now. But, yeah, he vamps out, and they put Quinn out with some fire extinguishers. We cut to a morgue at a hospital, and we see Quinn's burned corpse laying on the, uh, on the slab there. And this is probably one of the most horror scenes of the movie, I would say. Yeah. And we're introduced to Karen now, and we see that she's a hematologist, and for the uninitiated, that's a blood doctor, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Just being a smartass. And Curtis is the doctor checking the body out in the morgue, and he says he has some questions about the blood from the body that he, he wanted to know she had looked at yet. And basically, we find out that they used to be a couple, and they bicker a lot back and forth, and it goes on for a few minutes. Yeah. And it's so out of place. And something jumps at you in a second. And when, when I listened to the commentary, I found out this was all intentional. And I think it's kind of ingenious. The director and David Goyer purposely wanted you to get bored and lulled and calm. Uh, like, why do I have to listen to this fucking soap opera bullshit? And then you see Quinn's dead body jump off the table and fucking rip Curtis's throat out and start gorging himself on blood. And it works. <laughs> Quite frankly, it works, doesn't it? Because you, you are like, all right. We could have done with, oh, shit, <laughs> you know, it, it happens, you know, but this is definitely like a full on horror scene there, I would say. Yeah. And Kieran makes a break for it in the hall and Quinn does not give a fuck. And he charges out of the room into a well-lit hallway with doctors and nurses and cops everywhere and uh, bites Kieran. Right. And I really like that. You know, I like horrific things and like bright light in the public. It makes it creepier. Yeah. I didn't realize I liked it till I heard Jordan Peele talk about it one day, but it's just a thing that I like. <laughs> but basically, he bites Karen, like I said, and then Blade busts into the hospital because uh, he shows up to, to finish Quinn off. And all he managed to do is cut a hand off, which dusts away when it gets cut off. And Quinn escapes by diving out a window and the cops burst in shooting at Blade. And instead of running after the crispy corpse that took off. Motherfucker, are you out of your damn mind? But Blade sees Karen dying on the floor and goes to leave, but he starts staring at her and it makes him think of his mother and he can't leave her there like that. So he makes his way out of the hospital by basically chunking her from out a window from one building to another and then jumping <laughs> across himself like a superhero and doing the superhero landing. But Blade then drives his badass charger from the nice part of town to the industrial district where the Blade Cave is. <laughs> It's not called the Blade Cave, but for discussion purposes on this podcast, I will refer to it as that henceforth. Spot on, sir. Spot on. <laughs> but basically, at this point, what we're supposed to, to get here is we're introduced to Whistler, who is Chris Christopherson, as I said earlier, and he's working on some gadgets for Blade, and he gives Blade a lecture about bringing home strays. And throughout this scene, we see Whistler inject her with, uh, some garlic and explains to her that it's going to hurt like hell, but it might stop her from changing. And I think he gives her like a 50-50 chance. And, and basically we find out that Quinn is Deacon Frost Aaron Boy. 
We quickly cut over to the Vampire of the Masquerade LARP meeting, where we see the head vampire council <laughs> of the city uh, and a bunch of suits meeting in a dark office room about the massacre at the club. And we see that this is the ruling council and that they're led by uh, Dragonetti, who's played by Udo Kier. I hope I didn't butcher his name. Another guy that is fucking in everything. <laughs> is he the guy that explodes later? Yes. Yeah, he's yeah definitely one of those in... He's one of those guys that are like, hey, it's that guy. <laughs> like, I never know who he is, but he's in everything. <laughs> but uh, basically, the Vampire Council is worried about Blade, and they're pissed off about Deacon's clubs that he's running across town because vampires are supposed to stay hidden in the shadows, and what he's doing is not exactly that. They're being the grumpy old get-off-my-lawn motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, the council brings Deacon Frost into the meeting, and they go off on him. They say the human politicians will be pissed off that he's breaking their treaties, about gathering in large numbers. So uh, that's one of the treaties they have with politicians. Vampires are supposed to stay separate. And this was a rave of like a hundred and something of them. Right. And they also bring his blood into question. We find out that they are all pure bloods and that he was turned. But basically they told Deacon Frost that he's out of line and that they're supposed to be hiding. And he says they, they don't need to hide from shit. They should be ruling the humans. For fuck's sake, these people are our food. He makes an idle threat at Dragon Eddie and then he leaves. And we get a quick scene of Blade buying a serum from a guy because he told Whistler, I need to go get some more serum. And the guy says something about him being a week early. And basically what we find out is that in the movies, Blade has a thirst for blood and just like a vampire. And he needs to feast on blood. But if he takes the serum, it makes him not crave blood and he doesn't have to drink any. But what we find out is that he's building up a resistance to it. And that's why he's a week early. So back at the Blade Cave, we see Karen wake up trying to figure out where the fuck she's at. And she sees all of Blade's personal belongings, uh, including his mother's driver's license. What I'm assuming is a memorial for her because it's a door with some like black flowers on it that they show throughout the movie. And I never really quite got and his weapon collection. You got me on the shrine. <laughs> <laughs> Included in his weapon collection is his awesome katana blade with a booby trapped handle. Love that shit. Yeah, and the handle, basically, if you don't hold it the, the right way and press a couple of switches, it starts to tick, and it shoots these spinning silver blades out of the handle to cut the hand off of the, the wielder. And she fortunately keeps her hand. She pokes it while it's on the stand, and, and we see it operate. And originally, when Goyer was writing the film, he wanted this to be like an ancient sword that had been passed down to different vampire hunters. Like Van Helsing had it once, and this and that, and it was made out of some kind of metal, and they kind of took all that out, and it just ended up being Blade Sword. It's a cool idea, I just don't know if it would have fit in the setting of this movie, because this movie kind of doesn't do things from that way, you know? Yeah. But Karen walks in on Whistler telling Blade that she's a hematologist and she might be useful to them while he uh, injects them with the serum, which she's like strapped down to a chair and like biting down on something. And it, it appears to be very painful when he takes it. And they see her and she runs, but uh, old Gimpy and Blade end up catching up to her. <laughs> and they introduce themselves. And it's, honestly, it's the cheesiest part of the movie because Whistler's doing his thing. And then you see Blade like quietly land behind her. And he's like, and you've already met Blade. Yeah. <laughs> and he's just standing there with his arms crossed. It's very comic booky, which yeah. I guess that's what we're talking about here, right? Proof that some of that shit doesn't just translate. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> But as Whistler's uh, explaining shit, we see that he pretty much does not give a fuck about anything as he gaffs up the charger because he's like pouring gasoline from the tank to the floor all over the car as he puts it in and he pulls out a zip on a cigarette and lights a cigarette. Not a single fuck was given 
on that day. But he's explaining his weapons, and he says that he, he's revamped the UV lamp, and he thinks it'll work better. And it's basically a UV flashlight. And uh, he hands it to Blade, who bitches about the weight. You're so big. And for anyone who hasn't figured it out yet, Blade and Whistler have a father-son dynamic. Oh, and so that's what's going very on. Very <laughs> strong through the movie. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> but uh, Blade says it's time for him to go out hunting, and they cut Karen loose. They let her know that some people might come for her because she knows too much now, and she can't go to the police because the vampires own the police, and Whistler gives her a parting gift of some vampire mace made out of silver and garlic and tells her to buy a gun, but it's not so much for her own protection. It's if she starts getting really thirsty or hungry and food and water won't crave it, she can blow her fucking brains out before she turns all the way. Yeah, Whistler's so matter-of-fact. I love him. We will also find out that he matter-of-factly was incorrect on how to stop that transition later. Dun-dun-dun. But back at Vamp HQ, we see Dragonetti is, like, somewhere within their base lecturing Frost because he's in the vampire archives again where the non-purebloods are not allowed, and we can see that he's running some computer algorithm to decipher an ancient vampire language, if you're paying attention. Yeah. Because it says, like, trying to decipher text, and there's, like, all these runes and shit. And uh, Dragon Eddie basically tells him he's a fool and a stop. It's never been translated like in their entire history. They've tried to translate it and just gave up. Well, no, I can and, read it. <laughs> and he tries to put Frost in place and he bitch slaps him. And they trade some words and then Dragon Eddie leaves. And he just leaves Frost in the room, which makes a lot of sense for him to put his earbuds back on and start, you know, getting into his techno music again. And uh, they said they, they purposely picked that that really like manic music just to kind of go with his personality. Because he's actually a really well-made character because he does come off as that like super intelligent, super smart, high ambition person that's just too young to have yeah. experience. Because he has scenes with Quinn and even talking shit to Blade where he talks like a college frat kid sometimes. But he's also mean, powerful, evil, and well-informed and, and has a plan. You know what I mean? So, like, I, I felt like that was portrayed well. And Dorf actually didn't want the role initially because he does indie movies. That's, like, his thing. It's not because he doesn't get offered big movies. He just turns them down. That's what huh. he was saying on an interview and on the um, commentary. He just doesn't like to do, like, big blockbuster AAA movies. And he was just reading the script, and he's like, this, this character is actually pretty fucking cool. <laughs> you know? And he's like, I'll give it a shot. Huh. But uh, we cut to Karen's apartment, and we see Blade drop her off and tell her to be careful. And she's confused because daytime. What the fuck does she have to worry about, right? So she gets in an elevator with three strangers, and she notices that all three of them have some sort of glyph tattooed on the back of their neck, right? And basically, her eyes are open to the world around her now. And she gets off the elevator at her floor, and they follow her, kind of creepy-like, behind her. And she preps the mace, and when she turns around, they're gone. You could say they vamped out. Yeah, huh? Huh? yeah, huh? yeah. I got puns. Got dad <laughs> jokes, too, if you guys want to hear them. Hit me up. But Karen makes it into her actual apartment, and she starts to pack a bug out bag, right? And she's startled by a man that walks into her apartment, and he's like, oh, hold on, hold on. I'm a cop. I'm a cop. And uh, if you use that keen eye of yours, <laughs> it's Steve from Scream. What? The boyfriend that's tied to the chair at the beginning. Drew Barrymore's boyfriend. Holy shit, that's the same dude? <laughs> yeah. No shit. I thought he looked familiar. It wasn't from that. Like, I, I looked him up, and I'm like, oh, it's fucking Steve. But uh, he actually wasn't familiar to me. He just must have one of those faces. Just fun fact, it's Steve from screen. But anyways, he says he's there for a routine checkup because her coworker said she was kidnapped the night before, and nobody's heard from her. So, you know, it sounds 
This sounds kosher. It sounds proper. Yeah, wellness check. Yeah. And she asked about Curtis because, you know, she's letting her guard down now. And he says that he died, but she shouldn't worry about that because her ass is about to be dead now, too. (laughs) And then she fucking maces him in the face. And he's like, what the fuck? And we find out that he's a human. (laughs) So the garlic and silver didn't work. And we find out that he's a familiar. And he has a glyph tattoo, says which vamp he's loyal to. He shows that off. And we find all this out as Blade appears behind him and beats wholesale ass on him. And I don't mean like Kung Fu kicking his ass. I just mean like fucking slamming his head and face into random things (laughs) throughout the apartment. And uh, Karen gets pissed because she realized she was used as bait at this point. And the cop, Officer Krieger, uh, we find out belongs to Deacon Frost. And Blade says he's been hunting Frost for a long time. Uh, Blade robs them and explains that they are not the March of Dimes, and that's how they fund this operation. (laughs) But uh, out on the streets, we see that Krieger's running blood from the blood bank to the vampires, and Blade wants to know where he was headed, and Krieger tells him, fuck you. Fuck me, no, you suck this. (laughs) (laughs) That is possibly my favorite line in the film. But uh, Krieger gets away, and Blade can't shoot him because he's running through a crowd of humans. And Karen says that she needs to stay with Blade to stay safe until she can find a cure for her vampirism. She's got high ambitions already. They stake out a squad car until he returns so they can fall into the vampire lair. And it's really funny because she's like, what kind of idiot would show back up to this car? And then Blade points and running across the street. <laughs> but while the camera's doing the cutaway and the car's driving off, we see... A very vampire, the masquerade-like character, I would like to say. I just remember in the original, like, instruction book, there was, like, a long-haired vampire with, with shades on that's like, shows up in some of the yeah. artwork. And you basically see that vampire feasting on a girl in an alley. That's actually the director. Oh, okay. It's a little cameo in the movie, okay? But they follow Officer Krieger to a club uh, called Pearls. And along the way, he's calling, saying he needs help, back up. You guys need to clear out the, you know, the blood bank on whatever street. You know, it's burned now. And Blade explains to Karen that there's a glyph on the wall and he shows it and that, you know, every vampire important one at least has a similar glyph and they'll, they'll put it on the structures so that vampires know it's a vampire haven to go into. Right. And then Blade uh, gears up, lets her know that there's worse things out there at night than vampires like him. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And Blade gets to the doorman. By whooping his ass or throwing him through something. I don't know. He beats so many people's ass. It's hard to keep up with it. But he walks in the strange <laughs> Japanese club with grown men watching little Japanese schoolgirls sing out a key with each other on stage. Some things never change. <laughs> All creepy. This scene right here is proof that this is a horror film. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not an action movie. It's terrifying. But Blade spots Krieger, whoops his ass all across the floor, you know, like usual. And the poor bastard. He just gets the shit beat out of this movie. It's almost comical how much he gets the shit beat out of him. It is. But they end up in a kitchen, and Blair wants to know where the entrance to the lair is, and he won't tell him until he gets his ass beat some more. And he points at a walk-in cooler and says, there it is. And Blade has this, like, bitch, please look on his face, beats his ass further, then decides to open the refrigerator, and then has a holy shit, he wasn't lying look as you open the walk-in, and it's a, a staircase into a lair. And I'm trying to remember whose idea it was. This makes you start to wonder about how Goyer's writing works. So like he had planned out Pearl's the club and he'd, he had planned out, ended up in this kitchen and shit, but he hadn't figured out how they were going to get into the lair. Uh. And somebody had the idea to just stick it in a walk-in cooler. I don't remember if it was Snipes or what. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I remember two weeks ago when we were supposed to record. But, but yeah, basically <laughs> they just shot the scene of an actual walk-in cooler and then, you know, they shot a different scene going on the staircase. But it, it's a pretty cool idea. 
But Karen and Blade go down to the lair, and there's servers everywhere and, like, the archives and shit like that. And then we cut away from the scene for a bit, and we go to uh, Deacon's place, like his condo. And there's a giant party going on there, but he's nowhere to be seen. And that's because he's in his room working on the translation from earlier, which looks like he might have cracked at this particular moment, right as a woman wakes up from this, like, bed Darth Vader cube thing (laughs) behind him in his room. And she tells him that he really needs to go out in the party and mingle. And uh, it cuts away to the computer screen. You see a graphic of like a, a chamber, like a round chamber. And there's glyphs of, and different people put next to the glyphs and a glyph in the middle. We don't really know what all this means yet. But that's the first you've seen of it. Yeah. And Frost goes out to the party because he hears somebody's there to see him. And it's fucking whiny ass Officer Krieger with the shit beat out of him. And he explains how he had to come here and then he was doing his job and you can't be mad at me because I've lost Blade. He doesn't know where I'm at. And Frost gets sick of listening to him, bitch, and rips his throat out because he's just sick of listening to him. Quite frankly, he might have been hungry. During all this, we see a half burnt up Quinn in the room trying to explain to these girls about his best friends with Frost and would you like to meet him? And he tries to introduce the girls to Frost <laughs> and he just walks past them. And uh, I don't know, the whole exchange is, is hilarious and Apparently, almost every funny line is improv by Quint. Like, that one was made up. Like, he's just sitting there. He's like, hey, you got to meet this guy. (laughs) I love it. But uh, Frost tells Quinn and Mercury, and Mercury is this blonde-headed vampire chick that we've seen a couple times hanging out with with his group of people. That's like his, uh, that's his left and his right hand, if you will, Quinn and Mercury. Yeah, she looks like a uh, extra from the Matrix. (laughs) Kind of, kind (laughs) of. I think I read that she was like a the model, like a supermodel or something. I could see and that. And then they cast her in this movie, and she's done a lot of shit after that, I think. But. So someone get her a sandwich. <laughs> but the takeaway here is that Frost tells Quinn that he needs him alive. We've been trying to kill this motherfucker for years. But we cut back to the vampire lair at Pearl's, and we see that Karen and Blade have found a giant obese vampire named Pearl, and he's surrounded by computers and farting a lot. And I mean gigantic. Yeah, like th- this this kid lived in his mom's basement before he became a vampire and then just stayed there. <laughs> right. And we can see that he's on like a video conference, like we are right now, explaining to Frost how the ritual works and that it's fully translated now, right? So obviously Frost was trying to translate glyphs and and go back to Pearl to to access the archives because he's like the vampire archivist for Detroit or wherever the fuck we're supposed to be, right? And at this point, Blade and Karen walk in and su- surprise both of them. And I don't know, Pearl starts crying like a baby about Frost, come save me. And he tells him to die with some fucking dignity <laughs> and hangs the call up on Pearl. Uh, it's real cold and funny. And uh, basically, Karen and Blade torture the shit out of Pearl with the UV lamp until he explains that Lamagra is the blood god and that he's coming and that nothing can stop him. And uh, Blade takes a hard drive from the room and discovers a, another secret room as Karen continues to burn the shit out of Pearl. Because he moves. Because I, I think it <laughs> yeah. was like, kill him if he moves. And she blows him up or something. On the commentary, they were try- they were talking about how they were trying to make it look like a nerdy basement guy's room. And like that there was just nasty bodies all over the floor. Like he doesn't even clean up his Twinkie wrappers. Yeah. I watched it several times. I couldn't catch the bodies. But I, I kind of got that vibe anyways. Totally. But uh, Karen follows Blade into the hidden room. And we find these ancient vampire scrolls all hung in like glass plates throughout the room. And we find out their pages from the vampire Bible. And then we see something running around in the room. And it's a, a little girl that we saw earlier in the movie um, sitting in Frost Party. And I mean like a young girl. Yeah. 
she's a badass in martial arts, apparently, and fights Blade. And it's probably his hardest fight he's had in the movie so far, right? Like, <laughs> part of it's probably because he doesn't want to hit a kid, but she's, like, roundhouse kicking and flip kicking, and he's, like, having to block it. Um, it was Snipes' idea to put a little girl in for that part, actually, because vampires are supposed to be stronger than humans, right? And he thought it'd be neat to, to reflect that by showing a child vampire could fight Blade. Okay, so she's definitely a vampire. Yeah. Because I've wondered that. Okay. And, and that's why she can hold up to Blade, because vampires are stronger. Until the third one, apparently. But we'll <laughs> cross that bridge <laughs> as we burn that motherfucker down. But long story short, we see that Quinn and Mercury have also busted in the room, and they've taken Karen hostage. And some other vampires grab Blade while he's fighting the little girl. And they're all badass martial artists as well, and he's having to fight them. And yet they got their leather jackets on and their ski caps. But Quinn tries to play a hard ass as they hold Blade and starts punching him, like, in the stomach. It's not doing anything. It's so funny. And uh, then he stabs him with his own silver stakes for revenge because he owed him one or two, you know, as he brings up. And by the way, his piano career is saved. Thank God, everybody. His hand is growing back. Okay. <laughs> and one of the vampires has a sword and he's like, oh, look, I got his sword. And then the trap goes off, which Blade laughs at and he loses his hand and it dusts off. <laughs> Quinn finds that hilarious and makes fun of the dipshit. Yes. Uh, like I said, these guys are like college frat guys that are trying to take over the world. And, um, we find out that Whistler is listening the whole time through earpiece and Blade's ear, and he plows to the wall and busts Blade and Karen out. Catch you fuckers at a bad time. Quinn basically has to stop them from shooting at Blade as he runs away because they might accidentally kill him. Fat chance, but you know, <laughs> at least he's thinking. Uh, they run down into a subway tunnel, and they inch their way down across the wall as the train's driving by. And Quinn, Mercury, and some other vamps pursue him. And we find out that uh, Whistler left a bunch of bombs in there and he fucking blows the shit out of their server room, their archive room, and their Bible. Like, it's all gone. <laughs> and somewhere in there, Quinn loses a hand again. <laughs> it just happens. And um, they escape by Blade grabbing onto the end of the train while holding Karen. Karen sets Blade's shoulder back in for him and he has to take a serum. And this is the point where she wants to know, is he a vampire? What the fuck is he? Yeah. They make it back to the Blade Cave, though, somewhere in there, because we saw Whistler. He just dipped out through, like, a sewer tunnel. Like, he takes care of his own damn self. Um, but we see him explaining to Karen how he found Blade on the streets and, when he was a kid, and then he was feeding on homeless people, and Whistler's about to kill him and figured out what he was somehow. I don't know how. If he was, had fangs and was feeding on people, I would have went straight with vampire. But he figured <laughs> out he's a hybrid somehow and decided to train him to hunt vampires. Logical next step. We find out that uh, he was turned from his mom being bitten while giving birth. So that's kind of like his comic origin. Actually, exactly like other than the brothel part. Hell, she could have been working at a brothel. We don't know what she did. We they know. didn't show us. And um, basically, Whistler says that he has all their strengths and none of their weaknesses except for the thirst that he has. And he ages a little bit, right? Yeah. And like I said, that was that that shit was made up for the movie, and and that's what he turned into in the comics. Whistler explains that he hates vampires himself because he was tortured by vampires as they murdered his wife and daughters in front of him, and tried to make him pick which ones died first. And he just says that like some shit's fucking going down bigger than anything they've seen, and he knows Frost has to be at the center of it. So obviously, these guys are familiar with Frost, and they want his ass dead. We see Karen and Blade uh, have a little chat in the lair here, and he's basically boohoo. I'm a monster, and <laughs> monster. I'm gonna kill vampires until I avenge my mom. You know every hero vampire story, yes, right? Yes, totally. We've seen it 
a lot. <laughs> but back at, at, at Deacon's place, we see Quinn and Mercury arguing about whose fault it is that Blade got away. And Frost comes in and reminds Quinn that he cannot kill Blade because he needs him alive. And he's like, and I need you, buddy. <laughs> That's Quinn. Yes. But then we cut to Frost and Mercury making out and putting sunscreen on randomly in this tiny car. And I don't know what SPF it would have to be to work. Is it like over 9,000 or what? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, Frost and his entourage walk out onto a beach with Dragonetti. And everyone except for Dragonetti is in like full protective gear, including like motorcycle helmets with the, uh, the glass up. And... Um, Frost has like a Mr. Nice Guy talk with Dragonetti until he gets pissed. I, I think about his like bloodline or something. And uh, Frost defangs him with some fly, uh, pliers. And then they hold him and make him watch the sunrise. And he fucking burns up and explodes all over the place. And it looks pretty cool. Yeah. It, it's cheesy now, but it, it the way it was, it was cinematic. That's the best way for yeah. me to say it. We quickly cut to the vampire cancel and we see Dragonetti's fangs being thrown on the table. And basically, Frost sets at the head chair and says, I'm the captain now, right? <laughs> and he says he needs 12 volunteers. Back at the Blade Cave, though, Blade's handing Whistler a uh, piece of the vampire Bible that apparently smells like someone wiped their ass with it. <laughs> smells like a vampire wiped his ass with it. <laughs> I love all the Whistler lines. And uh, he says it has something to do about the blood god. And Blade gives him the hard drive, tells him to decrypt the shit. And he sees that Karen has acquired some equipment from the hospital. I guess you could just take all this shit home. Nobody asks any questions. And it is Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> and we find out that she had been working on an anticoagulant called EDTA. And she has Blade take a look at it as she introduced some vampire blood to it. And it fucking explodes everywhere. Blows up a microscope. Whistler's laughing his ass off. And uh, Blade's making fun of her and says, some cure. And she's like, no, this isn't the cure. I just thought it might be good for exploding some vampire heads. <laughs> so now we got a new weapon for him. She then takes some blood samples from Blade because he's a hybrid and maybe it'll uh, it'll help with her vampire cure. And meanwhile, she asks about Whistler, who's looking kind of sickly, and we find out that he has cancer. And uh, he's like a father to Blade, which we already kind of figured that out, right? Yeah. And we see Karen checking herself out in the mirror shortly afterwards, and she's trying to look at at her her wound marks. And we see that she's like really tired looking. And Whistler busts in, and they have a talk, and you know he's explaining. I don't think we caught it in time, right? Yeah. And she's I'm gonna find this goddamn cure, right? And uh, it was supposed to be Blade that walked in and had the talk with her, and Snipes is like, "No, nah, Blade wouldn't do that." <laughs> And they got Whistler to do it. And honestly, it worked out better that way, I think. I think it makes more sense. Yeah. But uh, Blade goes on another serum run, and it's during the day, and he, he runs in a deacon at the park who has some more of that super sunscreen on again, and a little girl is a hostage. And Frost explains that he knows everything about Blade, and he means everything. Like, he's been stalking him. He knows about a serum, his sword, like this, and they just goes through the fucking list. And Frost says that he wants to have a truce, and then Blade says a line in another language about the blood god Lamora, and this pisses Frost off, basically, right? Because he knows too much. And Frost chunks the girl, basically, uh, and Blade opens fire on Frost, and he does, like, a bullet time dodge. Had not been done before. This was pre-Matrix. On the commentary, they actually said there were several directors that were on set daily as the movie was getting shot. It was actually Stephen Dorff talking about it because he does indie movies. And this yeah. is the first scene he shot in the movie. Okay. Hadn't met Snipes yet. Hadn't had time to figure out the character yet. And there's 10 cameras on him 
He's never done a movie <laughs> with 10 cameras. And they're explaining, you know, how all this is going to happen. He's talking about he's nervous. He starts naming all these famous directors are there. And it's because everybody wanted to see what was going on. And I wonder if the uh, Wachowskis were on set at all. They would have already been filming The Matrix, though, at that time, wouldn't they? I don't know. Blade uh, got stuck in production hell ah, for so like a year or two before it came out. Okay. Yep. But I'll tell you what, you know what I always think of with the bullet time rigs with the multiple cameras is uh, SLC Punk. Yeah. They did it for when the rednecks crashed the party, only they did it with disposable cameras and then just yep. filmed all the prints. So anyways, I'll, I'll always come back to that. Like, hell no. SLC Punk did it first, y'all. <laughs> I always, always think about that. <laughs> but uh, the interesting thing about the scene, you know, if we're going to do a little behind the scenes here, like I said, it was Doris first day on set and... Snipes even says in the commentary, because he was actually allowed to do this one, <laughs> he says that, you know, he's the producer and he has to sit down and talk to the actors and, and like, it wasn't fair for this to be Stephen Dorff's first scene because he hadn't had time to figure out how he's going to play the character yet. And he has to have this, like, mean fucking scene with Snipes. And they did the first take and Snipes, like, the hardest thing to tell an actor is that they got to do it again because it wasn't good enough. And I went and had a talk with him and I think I pissed him off. And then we got this take. <laughs> and, you know, and, and Dorf says something to kind of, you know, to agree with that. And he's like, he's the producer. You got to do, do what he says. But it ended up being a pretty good take. The only thing I noticed that was kind of weird is he has a Band-Aid on his knuckle, on his finger. And when he's rubbing the little girl's neck. Yeah. And I was like, that's he's a vampire. That's Why couldn't they, like, make up his wound or whatever? Then I did some research. Check this shit out. Apparently, one of his ex-girlfriends put a Band-Aid on his finger there one time and told him it'd be a cool look. And he, like, has to wear his fingers like that at all time in movies. Like, he always has the Band-Aid on there. So that's like his his binky. That's that's that's. Yep. Yep. Okay. And if you look, he has the Band-Aid on to the whole fucking movie. So apparently, that's no his shit. thing. But it looks out of place on a vampire. I'm just saying. What the fuck kind of indie? I got to watch my wording here. <laughs> I mean, he is a good actor, but he definitely goes into that like indie kind of weird method actor crowd, right? <laughs> but anyways, back at the Blade Cave, we see that Karen has made a cure that will only work on someone who is recently bitten and injects herself with it while talking to Whistler about it. At this point, they're jumped by Quinn, Mercury, and Frost, and some goons, and they take Karen away, and Frost viciously curb stomps the fuck out of Whistler and then leaves them to Quinn. To do whatever with. And Blade arrives at the base to find Karen missing and Whistler bleeding out in a chair. I think it's the chair where Blade gets the serum. Yeah. Whistler explains that he decoded the drive and that the ritual requires a key to to work. And that key is a daywalker, which he's the only daywalker. So he's the chosen one, as the Bible you know refers to him. He's the fifth and, element. Right, right. All Everything's got a chosen one, man. <laughs> And Whistler says that he's too far gone for him to try to save him. And he asks Blade for his gun, which Blade reluctantly leaves. Does a cool guys don't look at explosions, walk away <laughs> as we hear the gunshot in the background. Right. And um, it was supposed to be Blade that shot. Like he's just supposed to take Whistler out and then they ended up changing it and reshooting it and making it that way. And I like it that way better personally. I think it fits Whistler's character. I mean, I agree, because that way, you know, if you don't die on screen. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Snipes says this is the was the hardest scene in the movie to film for him, because, like, producers and writers and directors say they want something to a makeup crew, and then the makeup crew just does the makeup, right? Yeah. And then basically, there's fucking wounds all over Whistler, and you don't know what's supposed to be what. And he's supposed to triage him. And he's like, I, okay. And, he, and, he, and they leave him gauze. They don't even leave him a rag. No, no, he and just puts a band-aid gauze. on his finger. I know, I know. But Snipes talking about how he's trying to have this really serious talk with Chris Christopherson as he's dying. Well, he has this gauze and he just picks a spot. 
and he's poking it with the gauze and it's sticking and pulling the makeup off. And I can't unsee it when I watch it. And he's like, what the fuck do I do? But keep going. <laughs> oh, I gotta go funny. back and rewatch that scene. I'm going to go on way too long for this action movie, but like, I don't know. There's a lot of little fun things in here, but Blade finds a video that Frost left saying that Whistler should be dead by now. And if it makes him feel any better, he put up a hell of a fight and he tells him where he can meet him and rescue Karen. Right. And Blade knows it's a trap, but he gears up to go anyways. And he makes some syringes with the EDTA that she had made. Meditates a bit, rips those flowers off that door that has something to do with his mom and rolls out on the blade cycle. It's not called that, but that's what we're going to call it. Back at Frost Base, we cut to Deacon talking to Karen and offering to turn her into a vampire because he kind of likes her. And she explains that she has a cure. And if he fucking bites her, she'll just cure herself again. And she taunts Frost about being turned and not being pure blood, which I don't know how she knows all that, but she does. And uh, she lets him know that vampires are like an STD. Yes. But she really pisses Frost off with that line. And Dwarf delivers this fucking awesome bad guy speech about vampires being the top of the fucking food chain. And uh, you know what? I think I'm just going to let Stephen Dwarf say it. We're the top of the fucking food chain. The blood god's coming. And after tonight, you people are fucking history. He's a hurricane, an act of God. Anyone caught in his path will instantly be turned. Everyone you've ever known. Everyone you've ever fucking loved. It won't matter who's pure blood and who's not. How are you going to cure the whole fucking world? Between him curb stomping Whistler and that that speech right there, you're like, yeah, this, we got a good bad guy. He makes a good bad guy. Meanwhile, Blade shows up and assaults the entire fucking base. And this is an awesome action sequence in the lobby with the pillars getting blown up and flips. And I really feel like the Wachowskis totally ripped off the scene for the end of the first Matrix film when Neo goes to the base. This one I will totally give you. <laughs> There's a lot of Matrix and Blade, and Blade came first, so yes. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. They're both good action flicks, though. But the best part of the scene, aside from all the awesome action, is Quinn trying to explain how badass Blade is and some of his moves and weapons to Frost, and Frost does this whole mocking thing. It's like, uh, yeah, he's got the sword, and he throws the, the, the blade, and he spins around, and he catches, shut the fuck up. <laughs> he just totally goes off on him. It's a bro moment, right? And uh, those guys could totally done a bromance movie. But after Blade clears the first floor out, he goes upstairs because you know how these video games work. You got to go to the next floor after you take out the mini boss. And uh, the building's on lockdown, right? So he has to fight two of the kung fu vampires that have like the black jackets on again. You yes. know which ones are the kung fu vampires. And he fights them in a the hallway and he stabs each one of them with an EDTA syringe. And they swell up gigantic and fucking explode everywhere. And some people call this scene cheesy. But I think it's kind of awesome, and it reminds me of Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> reminds me of Akira. <laughs> okay, I can see that. I can see that. But you know in Big Trouble in Little China when he's fighting, uh, I don't remember if it's, it's not the Raiden guy, but it's the one that can make himself bigger and stronger. Yeah. And he's trying to bust out, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and he can't control it, and he pops. The head looks just like that to me. <laughs> but honestly, that scene might look like what a 90s or early 2000s era live-action Akira movie would look like. Huh? But Blade finds Frost's bedroom. And his Mac, because the vampires all use Apple products throughout this entire trilogy and the rituals on it. And then the bedchamber thingy behind him opens again and we see a woman laying inside and we discover that it's dun, dun, duh, his mother. And we find out that she died that night when she gave birth to him, woke up in the hospital, and then it was Deacon who bit her and he took care of her basically, right? Um, yeah, he took care of her. 
Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All <laughs> night long. And uh, apparently for decades. But while this uh, moment's going on between Blade and his mom, Frost and his goons sneak in and they cattle prod the shit out of him into the ground, which we find out that's like one of the few ways to take him down in the movie. I feel like that's done a lot with superhuman characters, just cattle prod the shit out of them until they can't move anymore. Yeah. We see Frost and uh, Blade's mom exchange a smooch. So they definitely have been banging this whole time. But then they say they're going to head to the ritual site and they load Blade and Karen to the back of a truck and Blade starts bitching about needing a serum and he looks at Karen and he lets her know that when this is over, he might try her miracle cure out. And she explains to him, though, that he'd lose all of his strength and regeneration, so it might not be worth it. At this point, we jump into the third act of the film and we show up at an ancient vampire temple known as the Temple of the Eternal Night that is apparently in driving range of Detroit, Michigan. I'm just saying. (laughs) I just thought it was some crappy construction site. (laughs) That's uh, supposed to be an ancient vampire temple that they unearthed. No shit. In America. <laughs> ancient. It's just southwest of Saginaw. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it Native American vampires? I mean, come on. <laughs> I do want to say there's like tall statues of vampires holding swords that are the pillars for the building. Yeah. And they remind me of Kane from the old Legacy of Kane game. Like with hey. the shitty graphics and everything. But anyways, Frost explains that the purebloods didn't even know the fucking building existed and that he figured it out because he's a fucking scholar and he dug his way through the books until he, until he knew it was going on. He gives a bad guy monologue and then he's interrupted by Quinn randomly punching Blade and talking shit. <laughs> it's so funny because it's such a serious like Bond villain moment. And it's got the dramatic music and then you just see Quinn sucker punch him and go, yeah, motherfucker. And then, you know. Frost is just like, okay, thanks for that. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, Frost shows Blade that he has his sword, and Blade starts smirking again, and Frost disarms the trap, and he goes, I told you I know everything about you, including your trap. And I love this part. He starts fucking around with the sword. He's like, Quinn, Quinn, hold up your hand. He's like, what, man? <laughs> and uh, he goes like to cut his hand off. He tells him he's fucking with him. It's, it's just hilarious. Like, it's yes. just so serious, and then these guys are, like, sack-tapping each other the whole time, you know? <laughs> But Karen's basically trying to like say something to Blade about getting him out of this and whatnot while the you know the, the bros are having their moment. And Frost explains that the thirst is kicked in and it's too strong and he can't even hear anymore. And he's like, besides, I got a serum right here, and he's tapping it, and it's the syringes at EDTA, right? Yeah. He then chunks them off somewhere in the temple. And that's uh that's key to remember for later. And they all separate and they take Karen into a room full of pits where there's an old friend of hers waiting for her that didn't turn quite right. Cause apparently sometimes when somebody turns into a vampire, they turn into like a zombie vampire and they'll eat anything, people, animals, bugs, even other vampires. We find out it's Curtis and he's creepy as fuck. He actually kind of reminds me of like a Renfield from Dracula, right? <laughs> when they throw her down in the pit and she manages to escape out of there. This next part cuts between Blade and Frost starting the ritual. So I'm going to try to make it make sense as I I hop back and forth. But Blade's being prepped into a sarcophagus by his mother that's supposed to drain his blood out as Frost and his crew prep all the pure bloods in the circle in the designated spots down below. And Frost is supposed to be in the center of the the pit for the ritual. After Blade's blood is drained out of his body, it's supposed to run down all of them, right? And and since Karen's escaped, she comes up there and pulls Blade out of the sarcophagus, but not before he's drained of almost all of his blood, right? And she realizes that he's dying, and she makes him feed on her, and now he's jacked up on fucking PCP <laughs> for the rest of the movie. Like, he's completely like, Ugh! and um, he's got a marvelous manjana, henceforth. And um, <laughs> Blade's mama shows up, wants to know how he liked feeding, 
And then they begin to have a fight, and Mama doesn't make it. <laughs> Meanwhile, we see the Daywalker blood drip out onto the pure bloods, and then it drops on Frost as the ritual completes. Lightning begins to crash outside from the sky, and then it somehow makes it into the temple and strikes the pure bloods. And as the blood drips on them, and we see their vampire bat like souls fly out of their body and swarm around Frost. Yes, and, it's cool. and then they fly into his body. Yeah, I mean, the special effects are dated, but it's like really cool, especially if this is a video game. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we just see fucking, you know, the souls fly into Frost and his body gets slung across the room. We see Blade dive into the, the temple proper from like the top floor. A superhero lands in, in the bottom to fight Frost and all of his goons. And it's a badass fight. I mean, he, if this was an action movie podcast, we'd probably talk a great length about the scene, <laughs> but he whoops all of their asses with lots of badass moves. Um, after all, cocaine's one hell of a drug, right? So like, he's, <laughs> he's ready to rock. And in this case, cocaine is human blood. But don't try that at home, kids. Or cocaine. But after all the vamps are gone, Blade ends up finding a sword, and it, it's basically a wedge in a wall from where Mercury killed a pure blood and kicked it into a, a wall in a fit of rage. I will say the the important kill during this fight is I think Quinn is one of the last vampires left, and he charges Blade, and Blade has like a silver groat on his belt, and he fucking pulls it up and like decapitates him really quick. I love that move. Yep. <laughs> it was really cool. That's the only one I want to bring up. But um, he's used that shit more. During this, Karen gets cornered by Mercury, and she finally gets to use her vampire mason at work. <laughs> and she sprays it into Mercury's brain and blows her fucking head up. It exploded some heads. Well, that wasn't even her EDTA. She didn't get to explode heads with her own shit. True. We now get the final fight between Blade and Blood God Frost, who has a sword of his own now, apparently, because he's a, he's a cool sword fighting guy, too. And they have a pretty decent sword fight, but it's because they wanted to show Frost's face a lot. And it's not like Stephen Dwarf was a martial arts expert. <laughs> So they had to do a lot of far cut shots with a stunt double. This was all reshoots. This was not filmed when they filmed the movie. This was filmed months and months later. Okay. And it's because Goyer had written eight endings and didn't know how to get to any of them. I feel like that's a problem that probably happens a lot with him when I see some of his movies. <laughs> but I'll explain all that at the end. There was another ending shot before they got here, but this is all a reshot scene. But Blade wins the sword duel pretty quickly, and he cuts off Deacon's hand and then cuts his body in half. And he thinks he wins, and he turns around to sheath the sword as blood flies out and reconnects the hand to the arm and the torso to the waist, right? And Frost goes back together, and Blade turns around. He doesn't even say it out loud. You just see his mouth go, what the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. That's the proper reaction there. And uh, Blade does another flurry of attacks very quickly, and Frost shows that he's faster than him and knocks the shit out of him. And Blade sees the EDTA like stuck in some rocks that fell from the lightning strikes up above. But Blade basically chunks his sword up in there and makes the handle stick in right uh, in the crevice where the where the EDTA syringes are hanging. And uh, Frost goes in for an attack and, and the trap goes off and it drops the syringes and he catches them behind his back. And he fucking Ninja Star throws all of them into him and does a final one into his forehead and then like kicks him in the forehead or whatever the fuck. But it makes his blood start to swell and run through his whole body and his body gets huge and he fucking explodes. And apparently that's all it takes to kill a blood god is uh, a little bit of modern medicine. A bit <laughs> so, of human ingenuity. And uh, I guess an important part to say here is 
right after he explodes, Blade delivers the some motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill line, <laughs> which is fantastic. And you find out on the commentary that is a Snipes original, and it wasn't necessarily for that scene. They were they were having like their their reading, like the director and the writer and the producer and stuff at the table. Snipes basically said he's one of those guys that's always trying to ice skate uphill, and David Goyer's like, what? And he's like, no, I'm trying to get his motivation. You know, he's one of those motherfuckers that's always trying to ice skate uphill. And he's like, Steven, Steven, you got to hear this line. <laughs> and he gets the director <laughs> in the room. And uh, Wesley Snipes just thought it was a normal saying. It ended up being a fucking amazing line in the movie. Yes. But like I said, Frost is dead. All of his goons are dead. Blade and Karen are alive. They leave the temple, right? And Blade explains that he doesn't want to take the serum because there's still a war going on out there. And he has to fight it. And he tells Karen that if she really wants to help him, then she can make him a better fucking serum. Fade to black. You think it'd be the credits, but we cut to Moscow. <laughs> and this is another reshot scene. We see a vamp taking a victim down an alley and Blade hops down and whoops his ass and then credits. And there were a lot of reshoots there. Like I said, Goyer had multiple endings and didn't know how he was going to get there. And they shot an ending with early special effects and it didn't view well. So they had to reshoot everything. And it's because they went back and forth. Originally, Frost was going to summon the blood god. Actually, it was the blood storm. He was going to summon the ah. blood storm originally. And Goyer actually wanted this blood storm to happen. And he wanted it to go off and shoot out through the world and basically turn most of humanity into vampires and blade to be blade in the fucking apocalypse, like Mad Max trying to fight off all the vampires. Okay. And then okay. they decided to turn it into a blood God and have frost summon the God. And then somewhere in there, they turned it into frost would become the blood God. And they shot an ending of the movie where basically it was a blood tornado. And you know what the blood looked like that came out like when it turned into his hand, yeah. when his hand got cut off. It was just a whole room of that swirling around like the blob whooping Wesley Snipes ass. And occasionally it would materialize in a Steven Dorf and he'd be like, gotcha motherfucker, you know, and stuff like that. <laughs> and, uh, they showed that and, and the people didn't like it. So it's like a sci-fi original. I know, I know. And also, you can see this on YouTube. They uh, Actually, you can find that on YouTube if you dig hard enough. But the bloodstorm was supposed to go off from, from him turning into the tornado and infect everybody, like I said. And when Blade and Karen run out on the roof, you know, at the end, they kind of look off weird into the distance in the credits roll. Yeah. It's because they look over and Morbius was standing on the next building over. So Morbius is going to be in the sequel, and that might have been like the first steps of like an MCU back then, right? Uh, but huh. none of that happened, and they they probably made the better choice. I will say for a blood god, he he goes down kind of easy, right? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't know about the super serum. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all in all, uh, it's one of the early good comic films. Uh, I would say it was first steps of planting Marvel seeds into people's heads. It it took, like I said, a character that wasn't super popular yet and made him a badass and abundantly popular. Started a franchise, and I don't. It was a good mix of horror and action. I would say it's more action than horror, honestly. Yeah. But it it definitely had those elements there, and. I mean, it's, it's a fun movie. I, I wouldn't put it in like my top favorite vampire movies, right? Because it's not as much of a vampire movie in this one, but it's a fun fucking movie to watch. Yeah, it's a fun ride, but you're right. It's, it's an action movie with vampires in it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, guys, that's it for the first part of our Blade Trilogy series. I really didn't think this one was going to run as long as it did, but you guys are going to have to tune in on the next episode when we cover the second two films. There's more? But as usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online, and please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Your history. Have the good grace to die with some fucking dignity.